The recording you have just heard is from the answer phone of the American filmmaker Mark Street. It's Stan Brackage talking about Mark's film Sweep from back in 1997. It's a beautiful moment captured on tape with one artist sharing the passion for the work of another. The full message is about four minutes long and it's stacked with praise and enthusiasm. I love it. Our guest on Into the Mothlight is Mark Street, who had been making films long before Sweep in 1997, and since has exhibited work at key festivals and institutions across America and Europe. Mark is also a writer and assistant professor of film in the Visual Arts Department at Forham University Lincoln Centre. I was able to spend some time with Mark when he was over here in Scotland filming for a new project. He also spent some time with our local experimental film group, Moving Image Makers Collective, where he showed some work and talked with us about his approaches to filmmaking. And for me, in a small way, having Mark with us for the day linked us to that legacy and history of filmmakers in New York and San Francisco in particular, establishing microcinemas and showing each other their work. In his artist statement, Mark says, My work ranges from abstract hand-manipulated pieces to work that involves found footage to feature-length improvised narratives. Each film attempts to investigate new terrain and avoids being confined by a specific look or mood. And the idea of not being confined was a recurring theme in our chat. However, I started the interview by asking Mark about how he discovered experimental film at Bar College back in the 1980s. Into the Moth Light. It was everything. Um, you know, before then, I had. Um gone to the movies like everybody else. I was editor of my high school newspaper. I remember reviewing Apocalypse Now, you know, and my experience with the movies um, was was that of a teenage boy who went to the movies for entertainment value. Um, it was at Bard College. I studied um, 
uh, well, the, the film program was run by Adolphus Meckes, Jonas Meckes's brother. And um, it was there that I was able to see the human agency in filmmaking. Because before, I felt like when I went to the movies, I was looking at a big screen and it was a product and it was made up of um, production values that were part of a huge capitalist machinery. And I couldn't see the connection between that and poetry I was writing or photography I was making or um, short stories I was reading or writing and things like that. Um, and it was only at Bard College when I started to see work by Marie Mencken and Carolee Schneeman and uh, Barbara Hammer and Andy Warhol and um, Stan Brackage that I thought, oh, okay, here's a film poem, right? Here's, here's, a, here's a film that um, uh, this person made by herself that bears her signature. Um, and I can feel the agency of that single person in that film. So um, I really became quite captivated with um, going and, um, you know, checking out 16 millimeter equipment and thinking, giving myself permission to shoot my own film. Not, I have to go to university and learn how to be a cinematographer. Not, I need to be a film buff. But I can be a film poet, as Jonas Mekas might say, right? I can do it myself. I did read the piece that you wrote about Adolphus Mekas in the Brooklyn Rail uh, from summer 2011. He sounds like he was a, a formidable character and, and a big influence on in you quite early on. He was. Um, you know, he was an idiosyncratic fellow. Um, he, he didn't share... Yeah, he didn't share his brother's love for the avant-garde in some weird way. He was a sort of Billy Wilder kind of fan and uh, feature filmmaker. Um, but he was his own person. He um, believed in craziness. He believed in um, the human spirit as it animated films. And um, he ran the department as such, you know. And he, it's sort of like, you want to do it? Do it, you know. And um, it's that permission that you give yourself that I think is the essence of avant-garde filmmaking. You know, um, uh, I can do this. Uh, I can, um, you know, this idea comes from me. And um, in a weird way, it's come full circle because I've made two or three feature films as well. And some of my avant-garde friends said, oh, you've gone feature. And I'm like, no, 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 it's all part of the same ball of wax. It means, you know, I can go to Uruguay where I made a feature film, Spanish language feature film, and um, direct these actors in my terrible Spanish and have them improvise scenes. Um, I give myself permission to do that. And if it falls f flat, it falls flat. It's, it's permission to fail, to fail miserably. Actually, we're sitting here in a micro-cinema, and um, the inventor of the micro uh, cinema is um, a couple in, who now live in Tucson, um, David Sherman and um, Rebecca. Um, they came up with a micro cinema in uh, San Francisco when I lived there in the 80s. And they have a great article about it you might want to look up. But um, they said the great thing about micro cinema is to allow yourself beautiful failure. 
and um, I think you could translate or transpose that to avant-garde film as well. And we'll find that, and we shall put a link uh, on the website, and people can uh, follow that up. So you say in your artist statement that you like to work the surface of film to create rich visuals, which you shape in a very intuitive and personal way. And I'm interested in the idea of burying 35mm trailers for a Mike Lee film, or trailers out the bin and making art from Hollywood and, and then the, the kind of hand painting. What was the fascination with the cameraless film? When, when did that become apparent as an as a art form in itself? First film I ever made um, that I printed was called Scratch, and it was made up of scratching on black leader, uh, punching holes in it, um, scratching the emulsion of the surface, etc., etc., um, it was a way of intervening in the mechanism of photography. It was a way of um, a jealousy I had towards my sculptor friends who were always very dirty and um, tactile. And all the filmmakers were very clean and they were avoiding the dirt and dust and all that. And I thought, this is more me, this kind of... Um, um, I was going to say haphazard, but I, I mean more um, experimental in the true sense of the word. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm painting on the surface of the film. It might look good. It might look bad. It might be a waste of time. But um, I appreciate that um, not knowing. The idea of taking a 35mm trailer for a Mike Lee film and burying it in your garden... Um, and, and going back to it seven years later, I'm fascinated by the kind of artistic decisions around that work. So why that film, why the garden, and what did you expect to find when you, when you dug it up again? Well, um, as usual with found footage, I didn't, I didn't even look at the, um, at the feature film, right? I, I wanted to be on... Um, uninfluenced by it, you know. And this was a, a literal um, 35 millimeter trailer that I found in the trash at my local theater. Um, and it was literally in the trash. I wish I could say I was the first person there, but there was a guy in front of me using his cell phone to light up the 35 millimeter film, which I thought was a metaphor for, you know, the digital age and the analog gauge and all that. Um, and, um, I just uh, I didn't I didn't know what to expect. I'd read about a collective whose name escapes me that did a lot of burying of film, and um, I just put it put it in the garden, and um, uh, forgot about it, frankly. And then, <laughs> uh, you know, seven years later, I came up and there's this roll of film, and I thought, geez, this is really, you know, sort of like a, a ready-made or something, you know? Um, and what happens with um, film that's on a core is that the um, elements, you know, ice and snow and rain and all that, intrude less and less on the image um, near the center. So near the, near the outside, it's mainly abstract. And then you get this sort of wisp 
of narrative in the middle and then it disappears again and it becomes completely abstract. So I thought that's quite beautiful. The film is called Vera Drake. The abstractions seemed very water-like, so I, um, I called it Vera Drake Drowning. He used a lot of water sounds and a lot of music from um, female singers, and that was that. I was interested in if a new work is inspired by the content of the celluloid you have or if you're looking for something to represent ideas that you already have. And when do you know that you have the right raw material to work with if you're using um, found footage or, or, or if you're deteriorating the, the, the fabric of the film in some way? Well, it's a little bit of a back-and-forth dance, you know, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes it takes years for the ideas to rise to the surface. Um, I showed Zoom uh, this afternoon, and um, I think I bought the entire film or several reels of it from Craig Baldwin out in San Francisco, and, you know, I had it transferred. I looked at it. I thought, what's what does this have to do with anything, you know? And then little by little, you know, the more you look at it, the more um, some sort of um, poetic structure rises to the surface, and um, you make it your own, you know. One of the first films I made was called Winter Wheat, and it was made um, from a series of um, educational films about the farming cycle, and the farmer plants his wheat, and it grows into you know, plants a seed, it grows into wheat that turns into bread at the store, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I had um, six or seven copies of this film, and I just started looking at them, and I said, this is sort of interesting. This is sort of cyclical, like the farming cycle itself. And I'm from the Midwest in the United States. Um, I'm not from a farm family, but that kind of idea of crops, you know, being fallow and then being planted again and fields turning around and winter turning into spring uh, spoke to me. So little by little I was able to you know, come up with that film. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that the, the landscape or, or the, 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 the use of the landscape in terms of farming and how things on the farm change with the seasons kind of brings me to your relationship with um, Brooklyn in New York because the landscape there features really heavily in your work. Um, I became a city person, sort of. I grew up in the Midwest, um, uh, went to school in rural New York, but then moved to San Francisco, and um, then I moved to to New York. And um, I'm just more at ease in the city, in the urban environment. I appreciate the voyeurism that comes from uh, sitting in a pub or a restaurant and being alone and together at once with um, my fellow human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, I appreciate the, um, the kind of closeness of the architecture in some ways. Um, you know, it's funny, I'm on the subway sometimes in New York and I see an ad for a vacation and it's someone on a beach in the middle of nowhere all alone, and I think, ooh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Show me a city with, uh, you know, three million people in it that I can brush up against, you know. 
and uh, I'm just more at ease there. I find more to look at. I find um, I find myself more psychologically um, attuned there, um, and that's that. And I think it's perhaps that attunement to the city that allows you to capture and present it in a very different and unexpected way. Sure, and you know I'm interested in city symphonies. I'm interested in um, uh, people like Robert Frank, who was um, Swiss, obviously, and moved to New York. And, and of course, not to be stereotypical, but you know in Switzerland things were um, very regimented. And he talks about uh, this is kind of gross, but he talks about moving to New York and the smell of urine in the streets made him feel like. Like this is the kind of chaos I want to embrace after the the um, tightness of Switzerland, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. I can I can see the appeal. The people of the cities that you visit play an integral part, and they're they're almost um, innocent players in the kind of visual theatre that you present. Uh, is it becoming more difficult to? do the kind of street photography in terms of still photography and the moving image? Well, it's interesting. I wrote an article called um, Street Photography in the Age of the iPhone in Filmmaker Magazine. And I sort of talk about the contradiction between the fact that photography is more ubiquitous now. Everybody's shooting their cell phone. And um, people are more paranoid. You know, and people are like, what about my rights? You know, what about this? What about that? You know, and um, I was just in Paris and I got kicked out of um, the Gare um, du Nord in 15 minutes and the Gare de l'Est in seven minutes um, for shooting Super 8. And um, like the smart ass that I am, uh, the guy, I got a big, big gun too. I said, uh, what's the difference between my shooting this Super 8 and that guy over there taking a video, you know? <laughs> I didn't get very far with that <laughs> argument. But uh, seriously, you know, everybody's shooting everything, but people are more afraid of their integrity as, um, you know, um, individuals in some strange way. So I think there's a sort of um, contradiction there, you know? Into the moth light. Into the moth light podcast. Tell me a bit about your fascination with, with Super 8 film, because it, it's not normally the format of choice for artists who would maybe carry a Bolex and a bag of 16mm film around with them. You know, it's interesting. It's a recent love, actually. Mm-hmm. And it was born of the pandemic in some ways. Um, I just felt like my life had shrunk during the pandemic, and a smaller gauge seemed to capture my um, smaller life in some weird way. Um, in other words, I was living more at home. I was at home more. I was venturing out less. Um, and I thought, let me let me check out this 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 other gauge. Um, also, Kodak started making Ektachrome, which is beautiful and expensive, but beautiful, you know. Um, 
Also, as I got older, it's funny, um, um, f- filmmaker about my age said, I just can't carry a Bolex, uh, you know, for eight hours a day. I used to. I mean, you know, I made a film in Senegal, and, um, you know, I would leave it nine in the morning with a Bolex and six rolls of film and come home at six in the evening, and I, you know, I, I just can't do it anymore, you know? <laughs> I have a um, plastic... Minolta Super 8 camera over there. It's run on two AA batteries, and um, it's easy to focus, and it's even easier than a DSLR camera. You know, DSLR camera, eyesight as a 58-year-old, you're focusing it, you're, you know what I mean? You're, it, it's just, just more of a production. I can just whip out this camera and shoot it, and I'm really, I'm really enjoying it for now. I'm not sure how long it'll last, mm-hmm. but... Mm-hmm. And uh, when, when we were talking before, you were mentioning that um, you're obviously the, the new Kodak products for Super 8. There's a lab that will take care of them, but you're hand processing a lot of the 16mm film that you've shot yourself. It's easier for me to deal with 16 because it's bigger, you know, and I, I sort of know the formulas more and I, I can process it in my basement and things like that. I like the the um, chance operations involved. I like the scratches. I like the um, uh, immediacy of it. Um, it adds another element, another personal element to this, um, you know, pristine photographic image that filmmakers sometimes aspire to. Mm-hmm. You you talked about your super 8 camera and um, something that was a bit lighter and a bit easier to use when you were out uh, filming over the duration of the pandemic and I watched your film Sorties which you've described as a as a pandemic diary film filmed in your neighbourhood in, in New York City everyone had a, a different approach to making sense of, of the pandemic in terms of their own kind of artistic response so at what point in the pandemic did you think, okay, the only way I can process this is actually get to get out onto the streets and start to film again? That's a, such an interesting question. Um, I sort of shut down for a while. We all did, you know. And then um, I kept shooting during the pandemic, but I didn't think anything would come of it. Um, what was it? I read an article. It said, you know, Maybe the world is not ready for your pandemic novel this year or next year. And I thought, you know, what am I going to say about the pandemic? It's just, it's just hell, you know. Um, but then little by little, I found my voice in it. And I think Super 8 helped. It opened it up for me. You know, I just kept working away at it and thought this moment should be recorded, you know. Uh, the isolation, the... Um, uh, you know, maybe I hint at some of the um, mental health effects that we all have experienced as a result of it. And, um, you know, why not? It it, it happened. <laughs> and it went on and on and on. Still going on, yeah. you know. And um, why ignore it? And I'm also interested in the way that you portray ideas with a kind of more of a multimedia approach. So we've talked about, you know, um, 
painting the film or scratching the film or using found footage, but then work like morning, noon, night, water, land and sky. You're also using digital video and stills and collaging them all together. So what's your process for using such a, a, a massive palette and formats that wouldn't necessarily um, set that well together? In that film, I was a, a resident um, artist at, a, at the Brooklyn decommissioned Brooklyn Navy Yard, which is a um, it was a Navy Yard for many years during World War II. Um, it was de uh, decommissioned in the 50s, I believe, and um, it serves as an incubator for um, manufacturers and anybody from hipsters who are making skateboards to um, distilleries to um, uh, dry cleaners, et cetera, et cetera. And they um, sponsor an artist a year to come there and just wander and look around. Um, so I just picked up whatever. I'm, I'm pretty ecumenical when it comes to, to mediums, you know. And sometimes I'd take my 16-millimeter film. I used archival footage. Um, from their archives, I used still uh, photography, and um, I have a small camera that's about the size of a golf ball, and you can shoot from from a car, and it'll it'll maintain its its um, you know um, level, right? And you don't have to focus it, which is great. You know, it's a wide angle, so I use that as well, and. Um, just I, I, whatever I felt I needed, you know, um, when I shot uh, still photography, I felt like I, it was too static, you know. When I shot um, 16, I felt like it was too um, anachronistic. Um, and then when I shot with this, uh, you know, modern camera that, you know, moves along with a car driving through the space, um, I felt like it showed the expanse of that Navy Yard, you know. So whatever tool works best is fine with me. Um, you know, people talk about, oh, is this camera match that camera or whatever. I don't, I don't pay any attention to that. <laughs> um, I prefer to have, um, you know, things clashing than things resonating, or, or rather resonating, but I'd rather have things not matching than matching. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't let you go without talking about Stan Brackage for at least a moment. Um, at the start of the programme, we played the voicemail message that Stan Brackage left about your film Sweep from, from 1998. What did he mean to you uh, as, as a filmmaker and what did it mean to you um, to have that on your ransom phone when you got home that night? Terrified me. Um, never meet your heroes, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, if, if one of your heroes um, says something nice about you, I always feel like the next phrase that comes out of my mouth, they're going to think I'm an idiot, you know? <laughs> so um, I appreciate Stan. I think he's, you know, he was one of the most um, generous filmmakers in, in a variety of ways in the avant-garde scene. Um, I was never an acolyte, right? I was never his um, groupie, you know? But, um, you know, his way of manipulating film, his way of, of um, 
uh, hand treating film was a, a huge inspiration. And his um, appreciation of that film of mine meant so much to me. Um, however, I couldn't respond. <laughs> I just had to let it sit where it was. It's been really nice to chat with you today, Mark. Thank you for stepping into the moth light. And thank you for having me. It's lovely in here. Into the Moth Light podcast is sponsored by the Film and Video Poetry Society. Into the Moth Light podcast. Into the Moth Light.